Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is June 3rd. My name is Braden Dennis. I'm joined by Simon Belanger. As always, we got a jam-packed episode. We're talking Canadian news, Canadian housing. Uh, Simon's going to talk about the video streaming business, which is starting to get see some consolidation and interesting things happening there. And then I'm going to go over uh, what are called the 15 points from Philip Fisher in his book, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. So let's get right into it. Uh, Simon, tell us what's happening with Inner Pipeline. I know Brookfield is uh, doing their thing. You know, Bruce Flat does his thing, and this is very Bruce Flat. Yeah, Brookfield doing Brookfield things. Uh, some more drama in the Canadian business space. Um, so it looks like we have a bidding war for Interpipeline, ticker IPL.to. Uh, back in April, I think we mentioned that on one of the episodes, uh, Brookfield made an offer of sixteen fifty a share stock or cash. So you can consider that a cash deal because shareholders will have the option to purchase Interpipeline for a total of $7.1 billion. The um, board of director rejected the offer. Brookfield was not very pleased with that, especially since they already own 9.75% stake in Interpipeline. So this week, um, we heard news that Pambina Pipeline made an offer of 19.25 a share in an all-stock deal. Brookfield was actually not very impressed with that, thinking that their previous offer was better because it was an all-cash deal. Nonetheless, they came back with another offer a few days later again this week. The new offer from Brookfield is actually slightly higher than the Pambina offer, still an all-cash or stock or cash option. It's $19.75 a share. Um, it's anticipated that uh, they will accept this new deal from Brookfield, especially given that it's a much better offer if you just look at it from a cash or stock perspective. Um, it's not, I don't think it'll be as complex as the uh, Canadian National Rail, CP, and Kansas City Southern, but it'll be interesting uh, if there's any developments on that. Um, personally, I think everyone knows I own Brookfield Infrastructure Partners. They're the ones that are making this offer. Um, I'm not a fan of their kind of oil type business. At the same time, I do understand they're an infrastructure company. It's an important part of our current infrastructure. Um, so I'm just trusting Brookfield uh, that they're doing the right uh, decision here. They're getting good value for those assets. Um, and we'll see if the deal goes through. But I haven't read anything saying that there uh, should be any major regulatory uh, hurdles for the deal to get approved. And I believe I saw that they would go directly to shareholders for that. Yeah. The slogan of this podcast should be covering Brookfield doing Brookfield things. And this is just no different. And of the landscape of Infrastructure Co's pipeline business, uh, Brookfield Infrastructure Partners obviously own some of the best assets on the planet. But Inner Pipeline owns some really high quality assets. And that's actually been a great business and one that I've looked at a lot, even though I don't look in that space. And it's been cheap for a while. And Bruce clearly thinks that it's cheap as well. And uh, so now they're paying a premium, but... If they still see value in it, then they're going to try to make this deal happen. So, yeah, I see they've they've upped their deal to almost twenty bucks a share. Nineteen seventy five is the is the number. 
I don't see how they don't get it. I mean, Brookfield already owns a like fairly large stake. Yeah, and it really looks just based on what I read again that they're really taking this into their own hands and going. Uh, they weren't impressed with the uh, board of directors, so they're going directly to shareholders. Um, it looks like a, an attractive deal. Again, if you look at the inter pipeline stock uh, price, just going back about a year and a half, two years, um, they're still getting a pretty significant discount compared to what they're paying. And I'm thinking that's probably what Brookfield is seeing there. And they're most likely going to see some efficiencies like they usually do to uh, really make those uh, that a really profitable business. Again, I have no reason to believe that uh, to doubt Brookfield when it comes to acquisition. So I'll always give them the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise. Yeah, they're, they're hunting for good quality assets that are on sale. I'm just looking at Interpipeline stock here. It dropped 65% basically in the sell-off of early last year, which is pretty nuts to think about. So when that deal was announced, it was trading for about 12 and a half bucks a share. It jumped up a little bit above the proposed price all the way up to $17 and trades for over $20 as of recording today on June 3rd. So it still trades for below the January 2020 price, not by much, but um, I bet you they, I bet you they wish they bought it at 776 in March, but uh, hindsight's 2020. Yeah, the, the one thing that's interesting is the current price is slightly higher than the uh, Brookfield offer. So I, don't I was know. about to question why that is. Like, usually the arbitrage would be, you know, Lower, a yeah. little bit less. Yeah, a little bit less. Um, I don't know. Maybe uh, the market is thinking that there might be a bit more of a bidding war here involved. So they're putting a slightly right. slight, a slight premium, premium on it. On it. Uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, if there's an update, we'll definitely bring it up uh, further because, you know, we like drama like anyone else and nothing better than Canadian business drama. Yeah, you know, Canadians are so nice, except in this, these acquisitions seem to be so aggressive lately. You know, it closed at exactly 2025, which is funny because that's exactly 50 cents more than the current share price. So it's like, oh, Brookfield raised Pambina by 50 cents. Now if they raise it again, it'll be another 50 cents on the dot. So the market is funny sometimes, and this is this is no different. All right, let's talk housing. Uh, what happened with the stress test that went in fairly recently? Yeah, uh, Monday this week, or Monday was June 1st. Sorry, Tuesday. I'm trying to getting the days all confused. I think it's uh, just a lockdown getting to me, but uh, <laughs> I digress. Um, the federal government raised is minimum stress tests. The new stress tests will be the higher of the two, so either 5.25% interest rate for the mortgage or two points above the borrower's current mortgage rate. So this should be, uh, the hopes is that it will slow down a little bit of the market, make it slightly harder to get loans to be able to buy houses. It's really a difficult um, space to navigate for the federal government because on the one hand they're really seeing the housing market getting more and more expensive making it more and more difficult for uh, gen z's millennials to get a house it's a more and more big portion of their revenue if they want to get a get a house get their first home started but on the other hand upping that stress test make sure that if interest rates do go up they'll be able to support those mortgage payments and they won't be above their head in terms of you know the obligations that they have 
I've said it before, when people get loans, the banks don't really look at your current lifestyle. They're only going to look at your current income, your debts, and they'll do their due diligence, but they won't look at if you can continue living your current life, whether you like to going out for restaurants to eat, uh, traveling, obviously I'm talking more COVID, pre-COVID here. They won't look at that. They'll just make sure that you can make your mortgage payments. And that's really the importance of doing your due diligence, but making sure you incorporate all of the, the housing costs when you do those calculations and the lifestyle that you want to keep living. If you're fine being house poor and just eating crab dinner every day, then sure. Dirt maybe and ramen, baby. Dirt and ramen. <laughs> I like crab dinner, but uh, same same thing. If you're fine with doing that, then okay, sure, but you won't have much margin for error. Um, so keep that in mind. We did post uh, maybe a month ago. I did a little spreadsheet, nothing fancy. People can plug in numbers just to get a rough idea of all the various costs of housing and compare that to, to renting. The price to rent ratio in Canada is through the roof. It's like over 130%. And which is much higher than the U.S., by the way, much, much higher than the U.S., which is already seeing a, a hot housing market. But when Americans go, oh, wow, the, the housing market's crazy, and there was this viral thread that the CEO of, of uh, Redfin posted the other day, which is, has lots of unique insights, but they think their housing market is is hot. Look north of the border, and you've got just mental going on. I mean, up at my cottage... Uh, a cottage right around the corner from me was listed last year in a in a high demand time of covid for 700k it just got sold last tuesday for 1.8 million don't get me wrong slightly it's over a, asking <laughs> yeah i think it was listed for 1.67 it sold oh for 1.8 wow and that is it was basically a 11 month turnaround um, maybe a full year. It's it's just yeah, it would be it would be a full year now. Um, well, they did that for capital gains, of course. Um, but you know what's crazy is it's a nice place. Don't get me wrong; it has like five hundred feet of shorefront. You probably just knock the cottage down and build a new one. Like the property's great, but to see that kind of return in one year, I mean, what's going on, man? They, the the prices have just it's gone it's gone crazy and we're thinking about what does that wealth transfer look like in the next 10 20 years and the feds know that that's wealth transfer and all the housing market wealth stored for the older generation is very important and so it's kind of like a damned if you do damned if you don't scenario with the feds right now i don't actually have any good solutions at all but it's very uh, an interesting problem that we have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. I mean, I feel for people that are looking for a house. Um, I would just one tip I can give to anyone looking for a house. Don't get too emotionally invested in one specific house. Exactly. Be patient. I know it can be frustrating, but if you get emotionally invested, that's when you can make a very big mistake. And I was reading this alarming article I can't remember exactly where, but um, it was about how home inspections before you actually close a deal or buy or make an offer. So typically in the past, I mean, at least my experience and my dad was a home inspector, so I know that space pretty well. You would go see a house, 
and then you would ask for an inspection or make a conditional offer based on the inspection report. Now, apparently 75% of all homes, there's actually no inspections or an inspection after the offer has been made with no no way out in terms of if you find anything wrong with the house. So to me, that's really alarming itself. I don't know if it's it's because there's a bubble brewing for the housing market. I don't want to necessarily alarm people, but it's definitely there's some red flags going on because you're you know you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for buying a house and you don't even want to do a home inspection because you know that the other person is offering the same thing or more and without any conditions. Yeah, that, that's right, and it's a it's a weird market. I don't I don't have anything further to add than that. All right, let's talk about the book common stocks and uncommon profits written by Philip Fisher back in the fifties. And there's been some new additions to the book, of of course, like all these investing classics, there's been some office, uh, awesome, um, prefaces and intros actually done by his son, who's a very successful investor to this day. And so in, in his book, there's what's called the 15 points and the 15 points it's actually not even a huge part of the book, but it's something that a lot of people really get drawn to. People like lists. It helps their brain think about stuff. They like checklists. They like it's it's nice for the human brain to think think in these kinds of ways. So I'm gonna talk about them. And a lot of them are management type style, so they're hard to really assess. Some of them are pretty advanced, some of them aren't. But I'm going to go through them and then give my quick little two cents on that and how I interpret it. It's not necessarily how Phil meant to write it, but it's how I interpret it and how I use it in this day and age because the book was written in 58. So um, let's just be cautious of that. All right. Point number one. Does the company... So this is a checklist, by the way. Point number one. Does the company have products or services with sufficient market potential to make possible a sizable increase in sales for at least several years? Simon, is this not step number, checklist number one in our process too? Is, is the business going to have more revenue in the future? Like It seems like number one and a, a, a sensible checklist, but this is a pretty good idea. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, the fax business or the fax machine business is probably not a great business uh, right now because they're they're going away. Exactly. I mean, I want to invest in companies that are going to be better tomorrow than today. And so and he talks about also like, is the market potential really big? Like that total addressable market. He's, he's curious about that. And this is something I think about with, with back of the envelope market cap type valuation as well. The good old Sam. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Number two, does the management have a determination to continue to develop products that will further increase sales? So again, look, he's, he's curious about sales. Um, and is the growth potential currently attractive with their product lines? Uh, and this one I read in, when I read the book, this one was a lot about optionality. And optionality in a business just means, yeah, okay, Google has this core search business, but
But think of all the optionality that they have by owning a gateway to the internet. You know, they have Gmail, they have this Google suite now, they have YouTube, they have all these other bets, and they have so much optionality. And and this is what's important, and this is what Phil is talking about, from my opinion, is that do they have other potential to increase in size uh, and continue to develop new products? Number three, how effective is the company's research and development efforts in relation to its size? To develop new products, a company's research and development, R&D, must be both efficient and effective. I think of this as how Jeff Bezos writes his letters for Amazon, is, is innovate or die. He says that the company's slogan is it's always day one, meaning that there's always going to be people gunning for their position. They have to think of every single day like the first day at Amazon. And so it's that it's that innovate or die type type thing. Yeah, and if I I would say I think what really stands out here for me is efficient and effective because it's all nice and dandy if you're investing gobs and gobs of money into R&D, but if you're not investing that money well, it's you're basically just burning money away. Yep. Yeah, well put. Number 4. Does the company have an above average sales organization. So he's talking about a competitive environment. Uh, Very few products are so compelling that they'll like sell themselves without extra advertising dollars. And this is really important when you're talking about like scalability, gross margin, like terms of how you can scale and have operating leverage. So I look at this as like a net promoter score. Do the customers love the product so much that they become part of the sales organization without collecting a paycheck? You know, like I think of Peloton. People who have Pelotons let you know in the first five minutes of meeting them. You know what I mean? It's like who they are. <laughs> and if you have a Peloton, I'm not, I'm not talking trash. I think they're awesome. But you know what I mean, right? Like they are net promoters. Everyone who has a Teleton is a net promoter. So are they building a moat? Maybe. I don't know. One that uh, comes to mind is Apple. Apple is very Apple, strong 100%. here because people, once they have an iPhone, get try to get out get them out of that ecosystem. It's going Good to be luck. very difficult. And their marketing too is just I mean, it's it's excellent. It's the best. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the best. It is the best. Um I've been thinking with this one about Spotify's latest marketing campaign where folks are sharing their favorite artists and listening metrics. They have that year-end wrapped thing that everyone posts on their Instagram and you know they just sh- they have all this free marketing. They make it so easy for you to share this viral type content. And people like sharing their music by nature. So it just kind of works well and users literally become a marketing machine for Spotify at no incremental cost. So I think that's one of the more interesting things that Phil's looking at. Number five, does the company have a worthwhile profit margin? Berkshire Hathaway's vice chairman, Charlie Munger, is fond of saying that if something is not worth doing, it's not worth doing well. That's the most Charlie quote I've ever, like, I could, I could read that in his voice. So take a look at gross margins, take a look at EBITDA margins. 
does the business have some worthwhile unit economics? A business has basically two options. They can sell a ton of volume at low margin or less volume at high margins. And if they can't do either of those well, it's probably not a great business. A good example of ton of volume at low margins would be uh, grocers, like grocery yeah, stores. Costco. Yeah, Costco and uh, Walmart. Yeah, all of those grocers that will tend to Automo- be... Automotive manufacturers as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, so they don't necessarily have a moat, but they do get it. Well, I guess they do because of the, the volume, right? Well, yeah, and it's also like exactly. McKesson Corp or Cardinal Health. They're distributors of of pharma, and they have like the worst margins of any S&P 500 company in, like ever. But who can compete with them when your margins are so low? You know, like you're not attracting any competition. There's no one, uh, there's no Stanford entrepreneur in the making who is excited to disrupt Cardinal Health. Those margins are terrible. Uh, So is that a moat? I don't know. Number six, what is the company doing to maintain or improve profit margins? So this goes back to the last one. So many businesses are talking about Expanding margins being one of the most important metrics in the company. You're hearing Mark Zuckerberg talking about it on the call for Facebook a lot lately, which I hadn't heard before. Maybe I wasn't listening to old enough conference calls, but if you increase prices year over year, you're limiting your expenses, especially on the gross margin side, those are going to expand. And this is the concept of operating leverage. Software businesses are kind of wrote the book on operating leverage and it can be a powerful lever for them to pull. Number seven, does the company have outstanding labor? So this is hard to recognize, right? But is the company getting the best talent? The big mega cap tech companies may be in the best, they might be the best at this in history. The strategies work so well. It's pay them well, treat them well, get them to recruit their best talent as well. Like uh, there's incentive structures written into their contracts that if they can convince their other software engineers to come work at these companies, they'll get like five grand. I've heard upwards of 10 grand if you're at one of these big tech companies and you get a software engineer to, to, to join and they get hired. Yeah, there are referral, actually, referral yeah, bonuses or hiring there's bonuses. There's huge referral yeah. bonuses. Yeah. Yeah, and one one way you can easily find out if a business is doing well with retaining talent, we've talked about it before. You know what I'm gonna say? Glassdoor, Glassdoor. is a great yeah. great tool. It's really easy. You can pay a subscription to have more access, but you can still get a glance at what employees think about the CEO, the business, uh, even the benefits that they offer. That will give you Reviews. a pretty. Yeah, exactly. Reviews. It'll give you at least a decent snapshot. If you have a company that rates really low, that could be a a red flag right there. Yeah, as long as there's enough ratings. I mean, if there's like four ratings and there's two disgruntled employees. Yeah, that's probably not a good. It's probably not a good sample size. Yeah. All right. Does the company have standing executives? Again, harder to analyze. It's fairly qualitative, but listen to an earnings call. Look up the CEO's Wikipedia page. Look up the person who started the company. Try to find out about the culture. Number nine, does the company have depth to its management? So this, this segment is, is a bit vague, right? It's talking about 
a deep pool of management and different cultures clashing together. And I think of this as a decentralized management structure being ideal, where management is open to give responsibility to lower folks in the organization and empower the company and create a culture of, you know, you don't have to be in the C-suite to make decisions. That's a more decentralized management structure. It works extremely well and it aligns incentives correctly and employees are happier and more productive. And typically and, those will be some of the best CEO transitions. We've seen a few recently, yes. some pretty major ones like Bob Iger and uh, with Bob Shapek at uh, Disney. Uh, obviously Amazon with Jeff Bezos and I always forget his name. You remember? guy that's going to take oh andy jassy yeah andy jassy i mean we we don't know how he's aws guy exactly we don't know how he's going to do just yet but if i were to bet i think he's going to be just cooking jobs too right yeah cooking jobs so there's some some good examples out there for that it's it might be a bit harder to tell but um there's been some some good ones Mm -hmm. number 10 how good are the companies? cost and accounting controls. So look at some statements, you know, look at the financials of a company on an app like Stratosphere, you can see 10 year statements there. Are the operating profits jumpy? Is the accounting hard to understand? Are these like weird one time charges all over the place that are just confusing? Confusing accounting bothers me and really turns me off. Like, it's a huge red flag for me because unless I know exactly what's happening in the business, it's like, you know, what are they doing here? Why are they doing all this funky accounting? And it's just, I just don't like it. I really just don't like it. Yeah. And people can understand some of the things that may be a bit funky with the footnotes. Those are really important because right. oftentimes you'll see something in the financial statement. You'll wonder, what is this? As long they as there's not like a million of them. Exactly. As long as not there's not too many of them, it's easy to understand. And also, those one-time charges should be one-time charges. If they're That's reoccurring right. every yeah, year, a, yeah, they're not one-time, one-time charges. Charge. Seems to happen every quarter. And we're laughing, but I've seen companies like that. Hundred percent. All right, number eleven. Other aspects of the business, somewhat peculiar to the industry involved, that will give the investor important clues as to how understanding the company may be in relation to its competition. So this is something I talk about all the time. Think of one metric for each company you own and just track it. It'll give you some insight if they're gaining, losing market share. Keep it really simple. This will be something that the company will publish in every single quarter that you'll be able to easily track with a simple Google search or on their investor relations. So for for instance, Visa... I want to know if their total transaction volume is going up or down. Uh, for Netflix, I want to know total net new subs. For Facebook, monthly active users over time. Uh, keep it really simple. The list goes on and on for these types of companies. But keep it really simple and you will understand the business. You don't need to f- track you know, 50 odd metrics. Just understand over time if the thesis is still correct. And that's how I'm, I'm reading that, that uh, point from Phil. Number 12, does the company have a short-range or long-range outlook in regard to profits? Fisher argues that you should have a long-range view 
and that you should favor companies that take a long-range view on profits. He's talking mostly about growth companies here, right? So as a long-term oriented investor, I want my capital with companies that are thinking about the long-term. And how I read this, whether I'm right or wrong, is he doesn't want to see companies, especially in their growth phase, over-earning. If they're over-earning in the short term and not thinking about profitability in the long term and the eventual growth, maybe perhaps disgruntling current customers and and future customers by over-earning in the short term. And they want to be thinking about how they can expand that long term. So there's many ways to think about this, but they he wants companies that the management team is thinking about the long term with the business. Because if you're in a long term investor, you want companies that you're holding that are also thinking about the long term. Mm-hmm. And I was going to add to that as an investor, you can also flip that over for yourself, where you can look at a certain company that may be trading at a discount because the market is looking too short term and you're looking long term, you're looking 5, 10, 15, 20 years out, the market is looking a year or two, you know there may be some bumps going forward in the short term, but long term it'll be a really profitable investment for you. So that to me, you can actually turn it both ways. I think it's the number one reason if someone was to tell me, why do you think you can beat the market long term? Because if I said I don't think I could, I would probably just buy ETFs and go to sleep for the next 50 years. But the reason I think I can and the reason I have is my single greatest edge is I'm thinking in five years, 10 years, 20 years, and the market's thinking in 12 months, 16 months tops. Think about that. That is your greatest edge is when you are playing a game that is thinking more long term than the market. Do you need to even do you need to know anything else? I think that's that's it right there. That's your edge. Second one is probably invest you're you're the only one that's investing for yourself. You don't have you're not a fund manager, you don't have rules to follow, you don't have to rebalance, you don't have to do all those things. I would say that's probably number 2. Again, I always come back to the sleep test if it's too big of a portion, but you know, if it ends up being 50% of your portfolio and you're fine with that, just be aware of the, the risks involved, but you're not obligated to rebalance and that's another big edge. That's a huge edge. You're not subject to these bullshit short-term performance targets. You know, like what my portfolio does in one month is really not relevant, but if you're a fund manager, it might be. Number 13, in the foreseeable future, will the growth of the company require sufficient equity financing so that the larger number of shares than outstanding will largely cancel the existing stockholders' benefit from its anticipated growth? The non-jargon version of that is, in the foreseeable future, is is the company going to have to issue more shares and dilute shareholders? Share dilution can be very annoying if you own growth stocks that can't find profitability year after year. In the age of tech companies that are right out of the gate in Silicon Valley funded so well since their day one of being founded by venture capital, the businesses never care about profitability and then they're stuck in this 
air quotes, path to profitability. Ugh. I hate that. Uh, it seems to be worse every time I check a company like Uber on their yeah. po- path to profitability. And perhaps Uber turns out to be a great investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it has most- so much optionality. Maybe it does. Yeah, exactly. And I think the most important thing I take from that is just be careful of dilution. That's exactly. sense. It, that's yeah. what he's talking about. He's talking exactly. about dilution. That's it. There's there's companies out there that are producing gobs of cash that are actually buying back shares. You know, like Apple deleting the share count with all their cash uh, is a little bit more ideal than issuing shares. Or obviously. seeing yeah, or seeing a company that's strategic in issuance of share when their stock has had a crazy run and now they're just looking into the future and saying, "Look, our stock is sky high. We can do a second offering." Get AMC a lot of capital right in. Well, yeah, that's another. Uh, that's another. AMC. Uh, <laughs> the, the management is smart. They're issuing tons yeah, of equity. Yeah, but for the most part, it's a smart thing to do because the higher the share price is, the less shares you have to issue to get the same financing. So I always, to me, I've all, I've said it before, and when we were talking about marijuana stocks, those were really alarming because they were issuing new shares when the stock was all time low because you can t- you could tell right. they were desperate. Right. Yeah, it, you're right. There's there's two sides to every story. And when you issue shares at a, at a nice price, you're going to have some like convexity. I'm getting into some jargon, but you're going to have some like benefits long term from doing that if, if, if it's done correctly. So these rules, I mean, there's nuances to everything like investing. Everything we say on this podcast, I could... I could find 10 reasons that that makes no sense. Everything is nuanced and rule of thumbs are very silly just overall, but they can be helpful as well. That's why investing so, is so fun. That's yeah, I know. If it wasn't so nuanced, there wouldn't be this podcast. Uh, number 14, does management talk freely to investors about its affairs when things are not going well, when trouble and disappointments occur? This is extremely obvious in a quarterly report or an earnings call. Is management just saying, yeah, everything's great all the time? Or are they being honest and giving investors insight into the business and troubles of what's going on? I think of Facebook with this. You know, it's really, really funny. They deliver 45% rev growth. The business is executing extremely well. Daily active users are, you know, killing it. And then they give this horrendous guidance. Every time, and then blow the guidance off the off the door, and the stock sells off right after earnings because they give this bleak guidance. They're always telling you of all the reasons you should be concerned. Now, I guess that's I guess that's okay. That's better than just pure optimism. Uh, but you'll tell right away if the business is actually executing well, but giving investors a look into some of the things that they're dealing with day to day because every business has trouble, disappointments, and look for the owners that are transparent about them. Number 15, last one. Does the company have a management of unquestionable integrity? Here's a quote. If there's a serious question of the lack of a strong management sense of trusteeship or shareholders, the investor should never seriously consider Participating in such an enterprise, how much of a 1958 uh, investing book 
kind of quote was that. Yeah. So think of the Enron, think of the Enron type scandals. I think of Volkswagens lying about emissions in their diesel vehicles. They created a device literally to trick emissions tests. I owned one of them. I owned one of these cars. The TDIs. Recalled, the yeah. TDIs. Mm-hmm. It was my first car ever. Uh, to trick emission tests and create a literally fabricated number to the device. It's just criminal behavior. I was an environmental engineering student doing studying climate change, and I own a car that is literally the worst for the road, and I'm being lied to. Good on gas, though. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> I was getting a 1,000 clicks. You only have so much capital, so look for integrity. Are there it is. That's all 15. Now we'll move on to the uh, fun world of video streaming. The reason we wanted to talk about that is there's been some recent news about some big mergers and acquisitions. Uh, before we get into that, I want to give a little bit of context. Um, so just some of the current top media or video streaming companies. Uh, Netflix, obviously, I think probably everyone listening to this show as a Netflix subscription or or is using someone else's Netflix Yeah, exactly. Um, I know my parents are, so uh, we'll see. But uh, Netflix, as a side note, they're actually, um, they've tested now imposing some different subscriptions for people in different households. Um, they haven't started yet. I don't know if they will, but just a little footnote here. At the end of 2020, uh, so, well... Recently, their most recent numbers with Netflix, so they had 200 million plus worldwide subscribers. At the end of 2020, to get an idea of what uh, they were spending on content, and I'll have a bit more later to, for some comparison. But in their finance, their annual financial report, they had 19.2 billion in content obligations um, over the next year, uh, over the next five years, and that amount in 2019 was uh, 19.5 billion. So it's really, it's typically also what it'll be on a yearly basis. Um, to give everyone an idea, Netflix right now they spend about on a yearly basis. So that was content obligation over the next five years, but on a yearly basis for Netflix, it's 17 billion. Um, Disney, they anticipate by 2024, it'll be 14 to 16 billion. And I'll get back to the next one that I have data for Disney plus on their hand, that's excluding Hulu and ESPN plus they have a hundred plus million subscribers. Hulu is owned by Netflix. And so is ESPN plus prime video for prime by, Di- by Disney. You mean, right? Yeah. Disney. Oh yeah. Sorry. You said yeah. Netflix. Oh, did I say Netflix? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, it's Disney all good. Plus. It's owned by Disney. Yeah, yeah. Disney, Disney Plus, um, exactly. Or Disney, they own Hulu and ESPN Plus. Prime Video, which is for Prime members, has 200 plus million subscribers. They're all Prime members. Apple TV Plus has 40 plus million subscribers. This one will actually be very interesting at uh, keeping track of because I have Apple TV Plus and I got it simply because it came free with my phone for a year. So it'll be interesting if uh, people like me actually keep those subscriptions going. HBO is it Max set to auto renew. That is the number one question. It, it is removed, so I'll be I'll have to make the decision whether I want to continue or not. 
HBO Max or equivalent. I say equivalent because in Canada it's through Crave TV if you want to subscribe to that. So there's 40 million plus subscribers. Uh, it's still widely available through cable. Uh, a lot of people I know still have uh, cable and HBO. Discovery Plus has 15 million subscribers direct to a consumer. And again, still widely available through cable. Um, the one that's really interesting is YouTube Premium has roughly 30 million subscribers and that's just YouTube Premium. So when you pay to not get those ads, um, does not include all the probably hundreds of millions of people who use YouTube, probably billions, I would say. I haven't uh, seen the stats for that. And then there are some other regional or smaller players, like I mentioned before, Hulu, which is owned by Disney. I QIYI, which is a Baidu division in China. I think it's a mix of kind of Netflix and YouTube together. ESPN Plus, of course, in the US, also owned by Disney. So now some of the big news that we had in the space and really shows how there seems to be consoli consolidation happening, but also that content seems to be king and the massive investments that companies will be doing in content. So Warner Media and Discovery merger. So that happened a couple weeks ago. So AT&T will unwind its 85 billion acquisition of Time Warner. That was done three years ago. The new business, which will be separate from AT&T, combining both Time Warner and Discovery, which could be worth well above 100 billion. I've even seen people saying 150 billion, but they will be assuming some debt as well. AT&T shareholders will receive 71% of the stock of the new company and Discovery shareholders will receive the remaining 29%. AT&T no longer doing a vertical integration, which was their original plan, so they threw that out the window. I think they realized that it was not the best option to go and they're really trying to focus more of their investments and money, their expenditures to uh, 5G and expanding their network, which probably makes a lot of sense. The uh, Discovery president and CEO David Zaslav, I'm probably mispronouncing that, will lead the, the new company. He seems to be very passionate about it. He's saying that they're hoping to eventually get to 400 million subscribers worldwide, which would be double the amount of Netflix pretty much Whoa. right now. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's pretty bold. I don't think he gave it. He didn't give a time frame. Um, but again, you know, we'll see if it happens or not. I mean, I can appreciate his uh, his ambition. And HBO Max will also be launching a cheaper and ad-supported version, and it really sounds like they'll probably have a, like a product elsewhere. So I don't know if they're going to be still using Crave in Canada, for example, or have their own service. Um, some of the uh, titles that they will have or some of the properties that people may be familiar with, CNN, uh, Warner Brothers Studios, TBS, um, TNT, HBO Max, TLC, Discovery, HGTV, the Food Network, Discovery Plus. So they have a lot of content and uh, I think they're going to become uh, probably a top five player in that space in the next uh, in the next couple of years. It'll be really interesting how it develops. And for their annual spending on content, it's estimated to be around $20 billion, which Whoa. is... Yeah, which is in line with uh, pretty close, actually higher than Netflix right now and much higher than Disney. But keep in mind that Disney, they have a lot of their content with past past movies, yeah. past shows, right? So I think that's why they're spending as much lower right now. But now they're investing more and more. 
And like I said before, it's going to be 14 to 16 billion by 2024. Which is sizable. Yeah, yeah, definitely sizable. And it's the other one that's really making a bang in this space is Amazon. So Amazon decided to buy MGM Studios for 8.45 billion. It's the second largest deal in Amazon. It was not much, eh? Oh yeah, and apparently they paid a big wow. premium. It was being shopped around uh, amongst uh, Apple, amongst other people uh, or other companies were interested. Um, so they made a significantly higher offer, and I'll go into more detail. The uh, I don't know red flags, but probably what prevented a higher bid uh, for for that that media property. Um, to give people some context, it's the second largest acquisition after the acquisition of Whole Foods in 2017. Whole Foods was 13.7 billion. This one 8.45. Ring, which is a door kind of thing where people ring and you kind of see a camera, kind of smart camera when you're at your door. That was 1.2 billion. And they had a few more in the 1 billion range, including, which I think is a pretty good one, Twitch in 2014 for only 970 million. That was a hell of a deal. Yeah. So you're seeing Amazon obviously making a big uh, splash in this industry. Um, the goal is to bolster Amazon Studios with existing content or IP intellectual property and new properties for future content creation. They spent uh, $11 billion in video and music content in 2020 versus $7.8 billion in 2019. So they're definitely pouring a lot of resources in here. Obviously, it's Amazon, so that's probably, you know, $10 for you and I. <laughs> the strategy is really to attract more Prime members who then in turn buy more items on Amazon. So that's really the vision of Jeff Bezos and why they want to be investing in this service. Um, I have an Amazon Prime. Do you have it, Braden? I do have Prime. Yeah, and, and I mean, I use Prime Video a decent amount. Like, it's probably in my top top three i have about four four or five subscriptions and uh there's a few shows on there that that we watch and they they've done some decent original content too um the kind of the sticking point in all of this and when i mentioned earlier the reason why there weren't higher offers um is because one of the or the crown jewel i would say of mgm studios is obviously james bond so with this acquisition, Amazon will be owning 50% of the property, while Barbara Broccoli and her brother, Michael G. Wilson, own the other mm. 50% and creative control. So oh. I think, yeah, and I've read some articles where they were a bit reluctant with the whole Amazon uh, acquisition. They're a bit afraid that they won't have as much control over it. We'll see what develops. Uh, but that was probably the biggest crown jewel. But I think this is also what prevented other offers because they don't have full control on that uh, on that property. Um, some of the other properties that they have with MGM Studios, Shark Tank, I'm sure people will be familiar with that, especially if you listen to us on a regular basis. It's like Dragon's Den. It's really, it's really fun to watch. And if you have a decent understanding of valuation, it can be quite entertaining and sometimes and frustrating and frustrating and sometimes <laughs> just wondering what the hell people were thinking to go there with yeah. no idea of the, the business numbers. Um, Real Housewives is another show and there's a few others that are pretty prominent, uh, but it gives them additional content. And like I said, it'll be interesting how the whole space develops because you have some pretty big players that are starting to emerge 
Um, and just what discussion we'll have, let's say five, 10 years from now, see who the, uh, the top dog is. I didn't know you knew so much on, on the streaming war. It's good to see. I did some all research. I, all I care. Yeah, you did some <laughs> research. All I care about is who puts out this, uh, Lord of the Rings series. And I know Amazon's going to have that under, is it going to be under prime? They're spending $450 million on the series. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I'll probably watch that one solo because my fiance is not a, a not big a Lord big of the Latra fan. No, no, but um, should be fun. Yeah, I'm excited to see that one, uh, and it's it's a real fun industry. It says Just... that it's premiering this year. Is that true? I don't hey, know. I don't know. I'm not sure. But anyways, uh, if it does, yeah. that would be that would be an unexpected uh, little gift. And I thought video streaming was fun to talk about because everyone has. Yeah, everyone has it. So okay, so I'm looking at the list here. You did you did like the buy subscribers. Which ones do you have exposure to? Uh so Prime obviously. Uh I yeah. do have Disney right now, but I may be canceling that and just resubscribing when um, I like something. I have Netflix, Apple TV Plus, and the last one we do have Crave TV. So we have quite a Damn, few. Damn, you got like all of them. Out <laughs> of <Atta> boy. <laughs> There's it's a, a pandemic. Of, it's a pandemic. Yeah, well, yeah it's a pandemic. <laughs> Got to do something. Uh, very interesting. Okay, so that you have subscriptions to pretty much all of them, except for like the U.S. US strictly based ones. Like, um, which ones do you have exposure to with your capital? Just uh, uh, actually two: uh, Prime Video. I own. Uh, I'm a shareholder of Amazon and Apple TV. Yeah, you got Apple and Amazon. Okay. Yeah. How about you? I, do you have any? If you're counting YouTube, that's it. Yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, YouTube is probably... Might be the fastest growing of all of them. Yeah, and the best business model. I mean, for the most part, they pay almost next to nothing for content, right? To the Yeah, all the content's the made end. by their creators, and then they that's just get it. a cut. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great business model, I think. I remember reading something where YouTube would be worth like something like $300 billion, if not more, on its own. On its own, yeah. Yeah, if it was spun off. Yeah, the numbers YouTube was putting out, not only just from their top line, but also the growth was spectacular. I hope they don't, this goes back to what we we're talking about with Phil Fisher, I hope they don't try to over-earn on YouTube because they're getting pushy with the ads. I don't have, I have, I use Adblock, don't arrest me, uh, and I don't get those ads. And when I use a computer that on YouTube and I watch it or I watch it on my phone, which doesn't have Adblock, like damn in a five minute video they made me watch four ads yeah that seems like it seems like they're trying to over earn a little bit i'm a bit concerned with that or pushing people to the the premium subscription maybe i mean i i don't have ad block and i don't have premium so i i know what you're talking about so you're getting ads you're getting those penny stock trader bros hitting you with ads, bro. Forex traders all or you know, traders, crypto yeah. leopard whatever it is Oh God, I can't. Yeah, I have to have ad blocks. I can't stand those clowns. Well, that's that's interesting. The, the, this the sector is still very early days. I mean, think about it. It wasn't even until two thousand and eight that like Blockbuster went upside down, or maybe even after, maybe twenty eleven. I forget the exact 
the exact date, but and there's still a big runway, right? I didn't get the numbers of how many cable subscribers there still are, say Canada and US, but I know it's still pretty significant. They're they're going down. Don't get me wrong, but there's still um, some runway over there. So it'll be interesting uh, what comes out of that. But uh, now enough about streaming. So how are you feeling, Brayden? Not to uh, our last uh, Leafs Canadian update. So uh, yeah. Did Wait, you... did, have we not? We haven't recorded an episode since. No, the, we the haven't. Loss. <laughs> shit man so any riots uh, where you live or everything's good people are i think we're there. all just used to the disappointment so no i did say if you follow us on twitter at cdn underscore investing go follow us on twitter get updates for the podcast i did say that if the montreal canadians win the stanley cup i will record a full episode in a montreal canadians jersey I'll, I'll I'll be held to it. I'm okay with it. I'll be happy if Canadian team wins, let alone anyone. Uh, so you know what? I'm okay. I'm going. For, I'm rooting for the Habs now. You know what? I I'm rooting for the Habs. Really would have liked to see the Leafs not suck so much in the first round of the playoffs. I tweeted, uh, "Death taxes and the Toronto Maple Leafs losing in the first round of a playoffs." So you know what? Good for the Habs. Beat the the Jets last night too. So yeah, hey, the way to do it is you crawl to the finish line in the regular season, <laughs> yeah, just barely, <laughs> and then you just uh, you know you uh, you have a few bad games, and they've they've been really playing well though since that uh, number five game, and yesterday, yeah. like aside from obviously what happened at the end of the game, and uh, we so Jake Evans is good, uh, but aside from that, I mean they've they had a really good game, so we'll see. I'm hopeful. I put a few. Uh, a bit of money more, on the series. A few more shackles. Yeah, a few more shackles. So uh, we'll see. I put my uh, my money where my mouth is. We'll see. Well, I, I really hope that I have to record this podcast with a Montreal Canadiens jersey on it, which sounds ridiculous, but I, I hope I hope it happens at this point now because that means the Canadian team wins. All right. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been the Canadian Investor Podcast. Go give us five stars. Go write us a little review on your podcast player. If you're on Spotify and you're not pressing that follow button on the top right, what are you doing? Just go press the little follow button on the top right. Uh, and same with if you're on uh, Apple Podcasts, press that subscribe or whatever whatever the heck the button's called. Thank you so much. Go to GetStockMarket.com. You can go to my business. It's called Stratosphere. Stratosphere is the place for long-term investors. You can do your own research. There's a stock screener. You can find 10-year financial statements. We put out reports on every single company we like and we talk about, like Google, like Amazon, uh, like Adobe, like Spotify. It's all there. We put in these primers. You'll understand the business well in 10 minutes. Let's go to GetStockMarket.com. Peace out. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simone may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.